You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, Episode 18, for May 18th, 2008. Warning. This episode contains mature themes and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, Metamorphs! This is Chris Lester, the creator of Metamorph City. I've got just a few quick announcements, and then we're going to jump right into the story. First off, the Metamorph City t-shirts arrived on Thursday, May 15th. All of the domestic orders were mailed out on Friday morning, except for Paulette Jackson's, since she asked me to bring hers to Balticon in person. The international orders are going out on Monday, May 19th. I'm told that the exact delivery time for those orders will depend on your location, but everyone should receive them by the end of May at the latest, and those of you who are in the United States should get yours certainly in time for Balticon. Second, nominations are currently open for the Parsec Awards, which are given out at DragonCon to recognize excellence in speculative fiction podcasting. If you'd like to nominate Metamore City, you can go to www.parsecawards.com and click on the link that says Submit a Podcast. There are two awards that we're going after this year. The big one is the award for the Best Speculative Fiction Magazine or Anthology Podcast, and I also want us to submit Troubled Minds for consideration for the Best Speculative Fiction Short Story. There will be instructions in the show notes for how to do this, so if you've got a few minutes, please go over to parsecawards.com and submit your nominations. That's P-A-R-S-E-C awards.com. This is our first shot at the Parsecs, and I want my loyal metamorphs to get the word out that Metamorph City is a force to be reckoned with. Finally, I have information on some of the panels that I'll be appearing on at Balticon. That will also be in the show notes. If you're in the Baltimore area for Memorial Day weekend, come on out and say hello. You can find out more information about the convention at Balticon.org. Now then, I've got 39 minutes of story today, so let's get right into Chapter 10 of Making the Cut. Here is the story so far. In our last episode, the androgyne runner known as Ava Salindi helped Daniel to get in touch with his feminine side. After taking a potion designed to mimic the effects of the androgyne curse, Daniel transformed into Danny, a breathtakingly beautiful woman. Danny and Ava spent the night at a dance club, where Danny discovered that becoming an androgyne had enhanced her sex drive. After nearly forming an unbreakable gestalt with Ava, Danny realized that she would have to be more careful to avoid letting her new instincts control her. While they were at the club, Danny met a handsome man named Jared. Like Daniel, he was a low-powered telepath and was treated as an outsider by the Psy Collective. After spending some time talking and dancing together, they exchanged phone numbers and parted ways. Meanwhile, Brian Summers and his family have been cut off from the rest of the Collective since their disastrous mission at the Skyport. After six days of silence, the Hive has finally sent one of the Elders to speak to the Summers cell, to let them know how the assembled minds of the Collective have decided to respond to their failure. Chapter 10. Saturday, June 1st. I must confess, Brian Summers, that I am somewhat disappointed. Yeah, 
said Sasha, under her breath. There seems to be a lot of that going around these days. The elder ignored her, fixing calm and implacable gray eyes toward her cell husband. He sat in a chair with his back to the kitchen table, while the elder stood over him with a perfect stillness that was deeply unnerving. The older telepath might as well have been made of stone. Sasha sat on the couch with Fiona and Rebecca on either side of her, watching from a distance with their hands interlinked. They did not form a complete gestalt, but Fiona's self-control filtered down through the bond created by their physical contact. Sasha took what she needed and passed the rest on to Rebecca, whose emotions always ran close to the surface. You served with distinction for five years in the Imperial Military Intelligence Directorate, the elders said. You fought in numerous engagements and were honorably discharged with the rank of captain. Your service with the Mundanes was, by all accounts, exemplary. You will forgive me, then, if I am somewhat perplexed that you were unable to complete a similar mission when the survival of your own people is at stake. Brian stared fixedly at a spot on the wall, refusing either to bow his head or challenge the elder's gaze. I believe there are two factors that need to be taken into account, Elder. Yes? Yes. First, the mission was hastily planned and executed without the proper support for an operation of this nature. You believe, then, that you are better qualified to judge what constitutes proper support than the combined wisdom of the Hive itself? Brian chewed on his lower lip for a moment, then set his jaw. Yes, Elder. My experience in covert operations is current and in-depth. The Hive has more combined years of field experience, but it seems to be... diluted by the emotional input of the inexperienced majority. I see. And the second reason? We were working under a severe deficit in operational intelligence. The enemy seemed to have full knowledge of our capabilities. The runner who took the package from Fiona knew about her egoist powers, despite the fact that she hadn't displayed them in any great way. She prepared spell traps that were specifically designed to negate the kinds of tactical advantages that Fiona possesses. Meanwhile, we knew nothing about the enemy's capabilities. We were expecting undead. Del and Trace were equipped with enchanted weapons and bullets containing essence of garlic. Instead, we ended up with two dead Mundies and a rogue telekinetic. If Del Matthews and Trace Umbara had believed that they were facing undead, they would have been a great deal more thorough in killing the two mundane operatives. I realize you are attempting to justify your friend's actions, but the evidence does not support your theory. We must conclude that Matthews and Umbara knew that they were firing unarmed mundanes. Because you instructed us to use deadly force. Hells, you should have been thanking Delantrace for taking out some of the mercenary trash in this city. We have positive IDs on both of them now. Those men were killers and you know it. The elder held up a hand. You misunderstand me. We do not condemn their actions. They were the actions of soldiers in the midst of a war. And as such, we do not ascribe moral weight to them. Nobility in war is prized chiefly because it is so often impractical, and then it is only valued if victory comes in spite of its handicaps. We do not have the luxury of being anything but pragmatic. Brian crossed his arms. Then why are we being hung out to dry? We're some of the best operatives you have, but we've been cut off from the hive for a week now, when we should have been out there trying to recover that package. He looked up at the Elder now, and his usually soft brown eyes flashed with anger. And don't even get me started on what you're doing to Josephine. 
How is it pragmatic that you treat a soldier's widow like a child who needs to be punished? For Eli's sake, at least let us take up a collection for her and the baby. Josephine Matthews is under discipline for promoting disloyal and divisive philosophies during a time of imminent danger. Our wishes for her and her child to be safe and healthy and protected. But we cannot expend the resources of the hive on one who is trying to undermine our entire society. It is our hope that, by allowing her to see the consequences of her choices, we will help her to return to the fold more quickly. There can be no reconciliation without repentance. Elder, please. If I were you, I would be more concerned about the status of my own house. The sudden sternness in that telepathic voice silenced all argument. You say that you are among our best operatives, but that is now a matter of debate within the Hive. To be sure, all of you were recommended for this position by your former combat trainer. Colonel Victor Hincavos was quite confident in your prowess and adaptability. Your failure to live up to those expectations was a cause of great embarrassment for him, negated only by the fact that he was able to track down the rogue telekinetic so quickly after the disaster. Brian clenched his fists, visibly struggling to keep his voice even. Elder, you'll forgive me if I am... doubtful that a PSYOP as experienced as Kano Victor would have recommended throwing us into this mission without proper support and intelligence. The timeline was fixed at the outset. We barely found out about the incoming package in time to mount an operation at all. Kano Victor was consulted on the best operatives to use for the mission in light of its limitations. So you knew this was a bad run before it even started? We knew it was a difficult run, but Kano Victor was optimistic about your chances. Some are now questioning whether his assessment of you was... premature. The Elder walked back toward the door of the apartment. No decision will be made immediately, but these events have brought your qualifications as a cell husband under review. The Hive will be watching you closely over the next several months, Brian Somers. At the end of that time, we shall determine whether your cell's contributions to the well-being of the Collective are commensurate with the amount of responsibility that has been entrusted to you. Good day. The gray-clad telepath opened the door and left without looking back. In the silence that followed, Brian turned to face his cellmates. Sasha could see pain and bitterness in his eyes and in his heart, held back by stubborn determination. Beside her, Fiona's face was as cold and hard as stone, but her eyes flashed with viridian fire. On her other side, Rebecca clutched her hand between two sweaty palms, her whole body trembling. Sasha freed her other hand from Fiona's and clutched the crucifix around her neck. In the middle of her scared and conflicted thoughts, the prayer that came out of her consisted of only one word. Please. Brian met each of their eyes in turn. We have to find out what was in that package. Danny awoke the next morning with the sort of throbbing headache that could only come from hangovers or closed head injuries. She wasn't entirely sure which was to blame until she rolled over onto her new breasts, which verified that her hazy memories of the night before weren't some kind of trauma-induced hallucination. Further evidence came in the form of her sultry red dress, which was hanging over the top of a nearby chair. With a soft groan, she dragged herself off the couch and stumbled toward the bathroom, looking for something anything that would stop the pain in her head. The bathroom door was locked when she got there. 
She jiggled the handle a few times, then muttered a curse under her breath. Be out in a minute. Someone called. The toilet flushed, and a moment later she heard the sound of water running in the sink. She sank back against the wall with a whimper and wrapped her arms around herself, wincing at the persistent drumbeat under her temples. She had a brief mental image of Chagok dancers inside her head, but the pain was too great for it to keep her amused for very long. The door opened and Kevin came out. Sorry about that, I didn't mean to... He broke off abruptly, his eyes widening as he noticed Danny. Oh, I'm sorry, he said awkwardly. His eyes darted to Danny's bedroom door, which was open, then back to her. I didn't realize Daniel had company over. I, um, I... Danny fumbled. She wasn't even sure how she intended to finish the sentence. Coherent speech failed her, and for good reason. Kevin was wearing nothing but a pair of boxers, and his well-toned abs and hairless chest drew her eyes like a magnet. As Daniel, she had seen Kevin like this countless times, first in the locker room and then in their apartment, but his sleek, masculine beauty had never affected her like this before. She felt a twinge of disappointment at the fact that Kevin was gay, and she found that more disorienting than anything else she had yet experienced as a woman. Kevin put a finger to his lips and moved over to Danny's bedroom door, reaching for the handle. His eyes fell on the empty bed and his expression grew confused. He turned back to Danny, narrowing his eyes in thought. They widened a moment later as realization struck him. Daniel? he asked, looking deeply surprised. She winced and put a hand to her head. Not so loud, she muttered. The Chagok dancers inside her skull recruited a few new members for their drum circle. Sorry, Kevin said, lowering his voice to a less agonizing level. He looked back into the room and then down the hall to the living room. Danny could imagine him taking in the evidence in a matter of seconds. The dress, the rumpled sheets on the couch, the discarded shoes and stockings on the floor, the purse sitting on the coffee table. When he turned back to her, his gentle brown eyes showed equal measures of sympathy and amusement. (laughs) Too much fun last night? Danny groaned and rubbed her temples. I need a painkiller and about two liters of water. Or, barring that, a shotgun. I'll mix up a dose of hangover potion. Did you, um, want to put something on while you wait? Danny looked down and flushed. She was still wearing the underwear Ava had brought her, and nothing else. Good idea, she said, flustered. Excuse me. She went into the bedroom, shut the door behind her, and walked over to the mirror. She took off the underwear and focused on changing back to her male body. Nothing happened. No. Please, no. She tried to think masculine thoughts. She tried imagining her male body with its muscular chest and powerful arms and legs. The image in her head morphed into a picture of Kevin, and she found herself growing aroused. Damn it! She shouted, then wished she hadn't. As she held her head and waited for the ringing in her ears to subside, she thought back over everything Ava had taught her last night. They had discussed switching back, but she couldn't recall if the androgyne had said anything about how to do it. If we'd been sober last night, we probably would have thought of that. Sighing, she put the underwear back on, then added a t-shirt and boxers for modesty's sake. She would have to ask Ava how this hot-swapping business worked at the earliest possible opportunity. The androgyne was long gone from the apartment. The only sign that she had been here was the bed itself, which had been made up with an unusual degree of care. 
Kevin waited for Danny in the kitchen with a mug of steaming brown liquid. An empty packet of over-the-counter potion mix sat on the island countertop. She took the mug gratefully and pulled the stool up to the island, which doubled as a breakfast table. She took a sip of the potion, then another. It tasted like apples and rose hips with an undertone of spearmint. By the time she took her third sip, the throbbing in her head had diminished enough that she could stand to hear the sound of her own voice again. Thanks, Kev. I owe you one. Anytime, he said, leaning back against the counter by the sink. He had pulled on a loose-fitting t-shirt while he was waiting, for which Danny was grateful. With no telepathy, Kevin was as off-limits to her as Ava was, and adjusting to her new body was difficult enough without the distraction of his godlike physique. Godlike physique? Prophet, help me. I really am far gone. So, Kevin said, raising an eyebrow at her. Was this a practical joke, or did you lose a bet? Danny grimaced. Neither, she said, blushing. It's more of an experiment, actually. Kevin pulled up a stool and sat across from her, resting his chin on his hands and his elbows on the counter. An experiment? Danny nodded. It's sort of a trial-sized version of the androgyne curse. This time both of Kevin's eyebrows went up. Aren't you a little old to be thinking about taking the curse? The adjustment's a lot harder at our age than it is before puberty. Believe me, I know, Danny said, rolling her eyes. But I... I think this may be my only chance of really finding a home in the collective. Kevin frowned. And that's acceptable to you. Daniel, believe me. I understand where you're coming from. Even if my powers were stronger, I'd always be an outsider in the collective because of my orientation. Now, I could ask the Psy Therapist to rechannel my personality, to change my sexuality, so it will be more in tune with what the Hive considers appropriate. But that isn't me. I am who I am, and I'm not going to change for them. What you're talking about is even more drastic. Danny winced and took another sip of the potion. You think I don't know that? I think you're losing perspective. I told you it would be hard work to build a life for yourself outside the collective, but in some ways, that would be a lot easier than what you're suggesting. Why are you giving up on that? I'm sure you could find a nice teep out there who wants a monogamous relationship. Heck, look at Dell and Josephine. Please don't bring them up. Danny whispered. Kevin's eyes mirrored her pain. I'm sorry, he said quietly. I don't mean to be crass. He was my friend too, you know. Danny nodded, but said nothing. Still, it proves my point. There are good women out there who don't want what the Hive is offering. But that's the thing. I don't want to give up on what the Hive is offering. Look at what's happening to Joe and her daughter, now that Dell is gone. They were in trouble, and the Hive gave them nothing, because they weren't an active part of the Collective, even though Dell died for them. She looked down at the mug in her hands. I don't ever want that to happen to the people I love. I want the Collective to protect them, and take care of them, and make sure that they never have to worry about food or medicine or a place to live. Maybe someday the Collective will be generous enough and idealistic enough that they'll help anyone who needs it, but we're not there yet. She looked up at him soberly. And we're never going to be there if everyone who disagrees with the way things are done just leaves. Kevin looked at her for a long moment. This is still about Rebecca, isn't it? About being with her. Danny shrugged. She's the only person I ever loved. 
We've known each other our whole lives, and she's always been the one I loved. This last year, living without her... She shook her head. You don't know how hard it's been. I can't stand the thought of going the rest of my life without having her there with me. Even if I'm hurt, her co-wife instead of her husband, at least I could be there with her. And being with her is that important to you, important enough that you'd become a woman, be the mother of Brian's children, just so you can be near her? Danny swallowed hard. That's what I'm trying to find out. I don't know if I could love a man. I mean, I know my body is attracted to them now, but I don't know if I can deal with it in here. She said, tapping the side of her head. She looked down at her mug for a moment, then back up. But if I can, and that's the price for being with Becca, then that's what I want to do. Kevin looked deep into her eyes, and Danny wondered what he saw in them. Finally, unexpectedly, he smiled, shaking his head. You are in love with her. She nodded. Best of luck, then, Kevin said. Don't get me wrong, he added, off her surprised look. I still think you're crazy, but being in love is one of the better reasons for insanity that are out there. He smirked. There's something weirdly noble about it, actually. Thanks, Danny said, rolling her eyes. Seriously, Kevin insisted. He reached across the table and took her hand. If there's anything I can do to help, just just let me know. At the very least, I can give you some tips about dating men. Danny just laughed and nodded. Her circle of romantic advisors already included a sex-changing shapeshifter. She could use all the help she could get. How does it look? Sasha closed her eyes and extended her thoughts, taking in the emotional undercurrents of the restaurant as they entered. She could sense the occasional grumbling patron whose food hadn't been cooked properly, or a woman complaining about her boyfriend to a shopping companion. But for the most part, the people there seemed reasonably content. Sasha guessed that the bright, sunny weather outside was helping everyone's mood, though she and her cellmates were still anxious and wary. I'm not picking up any strong negative emotions, she said. If it's a trap, they're really calm about it. Brian nodded once and pushed his glasses a bit higher on his nose. Bex? Anything? Rebecca bit her lip and shook her head. No, no trouble. Not that I can see anyway. A pair of reflective sunglasses hid the glow of her eyes as she searched the restaurant's hidden nooks and corners with her clairvoyance. I, I don't think there are any guns or wands within Esping Range, she added. Sorry, I'm new at this. Sasha took her hand and squeezed it encouragingly. You're doing great. Rebecca smiled a little, but it didn't reach her eyes. Sweetheart that she was, Rebecca didn't know the first thing about PsyOps, but right now they desperately needed her ESP. Not only could she see around corners, but her precog would warn her if something dangerous was about to happen around her. So far she hadn't complained once, and Sasha gave her credit for being brave under circumstances she had never prepared for. Brian turned to Fiona. You see our contact? Fiona scanned the room impassively as they walked further in, ignoring the sign that said, Please wait here to be seated. Halfway to the back wall, she turned and gestured for the others to follow her. The woman was seated in the back corner of the restaurant, in a semicircular booth designed for large groups. 
She had a glass of cola in front of her, but apparently hadn't ordered her food yet, judging from the menu spread out before her. She nodded at Fiona as they approached, and Fiona returned the gesture. Sasha knew what to expect, but she was still a little surprised when she saw the woman up close. She was barely more than a kid. Then again, Sasha hadn't been any older when she joined MID. Fiona slid into the booth first, putting herself closest to their contact, followed by Sasha and then Brian, who tucked a small briefcase under his seat as he climbed in. Rebecca took the seat nearest the edge, carefully lowering herself into position. The teenaged runner pulled the table closer to herself to make more room for Rebecca's belly. Didn't know this was going to be a family outing, the runner said, looking at Fiona. Fiona shrugged, a careful and deliberate raising and lowering of her shoulders. I told you that I would bring the rest of my team. Rebecca is a part of it. Rebecca smiled nervously. The runner grinned and raised a hand in greeting. Pleased to meet you. My name's Callie. We know who you are, Ms. Linder, Brian assured her. We pulled your files before we called this meeting. The Lothanasi have some very interesting records on you. Sasha felt the ripple of surprise that ran through Callie at Brian's words, but the runner didn't let any of it show on her face. I'll bet they do, she said, smiling sweetly. But I guess there isn't anything too terrible in there, given that you're here talking to me. Brian spread his hands. Let's just say the idea of genetically ingrained luck explains a lot about why your mission succeeded and ours failed. Callie raised her glass in silent acknowledgement, then took a drink from her soda before answering. It helps. I don't deny it. What I'm trying to figure out is why a money manager, a shrink, a net jockey, and a painter would need to steal a smuggled package in the first place. You've been out of MID service for a while, and there's no record of any of you working in private security. She took another drink. Officially, anyway. <gasps> Rebecca gasped. How do you know all of that? She whispered. Callie winked. Your hubby's not the only one with sources, kiddo. She turned back to Brian. So, now that the pissing contest is out of the way, why don't you tell me why I'm here? We want to hire you. We know that the package you smuggled in belongs to the Vampire Syndicate. We want to find out what was inside it and whether it poses a threat to the Psy Collective. We've brought cash. Twenty mark bills, all circulated and non-sequential. He tapped his foot against the briefcase under the table. The runner nodded as if she'd been expecting this. Sasha just hoped that it was a good use of the money. The Hive had been loath to part with it, but Fiona had explained that it was absolutely essential for their mission to have any chance of success. Even then, she might not have been able to persuade them, but she had received some unexpected support when Miriam Bakhtivar spoke out in favor of the plan. Elder Bakhtivar was arguably the most famous and respected egoist in the Collective, and with her backing, the Hive quickly approved the needed financial support. Sasha wasn't sure why the Elder had taken such an interest in the situation, but with the opposition they had encountered from the Hive as a whole, she was grateful to have at least one ally in a position of prominence. I'm afraid I won't be able to tell you much. Anyone who hires a runner knows that our loyalties are flexible once the job is done, so the smart ones limit how much they tell us. Until Fiona here opened up the courier's parcel, I didn't have any idea what was inside it. I still don't know what was on the data cards or inside that little box. We understand. Why don't you set the price for the information based on how much you can tell us? Smooth, Sasha thought. By making the runner set the price, Brian was giving her the chance to establish what kind of person she was. If she extorted a lot of money from them and gave them little in return, they would know that they couldn't trust her with any further work. 
If she set a fair price for what she gave them, she would leave the door open for the second part of their request. Callie furrowed her brow in thought for a moment. Two thousand, she said at last. I feel bad for you that your friends were killed, so I'm giving you a discount. Brian opened the briefcase under the table and pulled out a centimeter-thick packet of bills, which he then passed around to Callie. The runner flicked through the stack and nodded before sticking it inside her jacket pocket. All right, here's the deal. The parcel is addressed to William Westerson. You probably haven't heard of him. He runs a local security firm called Viscount Security Solutions. I've heard of Viscount. I've never worked with them, but they have a good reputation in the business. Yeah, but here's the thing. Westerson's also one of the key captains in Malcolm Ardvalis' organization. I've done work for him before on other ops similar to this one. My mentor told me once that he was the intelligence czar for the whole outfit in Metamore City. He studies their enemies, figures out their strengths and weaknesses, and then figures out how to deal with them. Sasha was getting a sinking feeling in her stomach. No wonder the elders are worried. If this Westerson is involved, it sounds like the Collective is next on his hit list. How did you know who was going to try to steal the package? Fiona said that you referred to her as Agent Alpha Niner. Obviously you were expecting her, specifically. So who tipped you off? Callie shrugged. We were briefed on a bunch of potential agents who might try to disrupt the mission. Fiona was near the top of the list, but it wasn't all spookies. I don't know who provided the intel. What about the rogue telekinetic who was working with you? Fiona asked, her eyes cold and hard. Collective agents reported that Philippe Devereaux helped you to carry out your mission. Did he not provide you with inside information? Callie's lips settled into a thin line. Let's get one thing straight. I don't sell out other runners. You can buy my services. You can buy information about my former employers. You can even buy my silence if your money is good enough. But I do not give out the identities of the people I work with. Especially not to people who are probably out for revenge. Sasha didn't need to be a telepath to sense the anger behind the other woman's words. She shared a glance with the others, and they all decided that it would be a bad idea to tell her that Devereaux had already been killed for his betrayal. If that's the way you feel about us, then why are you helping us? Callie snorted. <sighs> a runner can't afford to hold grudges, especially not other people's. The fact that you're here talking instead of trying to kill me tells me that you can be reasonable. As long as you respect the way I operate, that's good enough for me. Brian nodded once. All right, so you delivered the package to Westerson. What can you tell us about the facility where it's being kept? There's a storage vault at Viscount's headquarters. It's on the fourth sky level, about three clicks north of the Citadel. The place is a fortress. They use the office as a demonstrator for their top-of-the-line security systems. The office walls are laced with lead and cold iron, even some mithril inlay at key points. Magically, the whole place is a black box when it's locked down. We'll manage. What about the vault itself? Three layers of protection. Magic wards, electronic card reader, and a physical combination lock. Brian and Fiona exchanged a glance. The electronic security doesn't concern me. And Fiona can take care of the physical locks. But Trace Barra was our expert on arcane countermeasures. And we don't have the time to find a replacement. He sent an unspoken question to Fiona. She frowned and narrowed her eyes, but she nodded, grudgingly. Fiona tells me that you have some impressive talents in that area yourself. Do you think you could take down Viscount's wards? Callie's body language became wary. You want me to go in with you? Absolutely. We can pay you well for the help, if that's what you're worried about. It's not. 
Her expression turned thoughtful. Everybody on the fringe says that Viscount can't be cracked. It's just too hard to get inside without leaving a trail, and if you do set off an alarm, you're not getting out again. A slow smile spread across her face. Then again, people have said that about other places I've been in, and nothing helps you up like doing the impossible. She nodded. I'll give you everything I know about the place. If you can figure out a way to get us inside, and you can afford my fee, I'm game. And how much is your fee? Fiona asked. Callie cocked her head to one side and looked up at the ceiling. Job like this? You're talking about some serious hazard pay. A hundred K up front, plus another hundred if we have to fight any of Westerston's goon squad. Brian frowned. I'll get you the 200 whether it's a firefight or not, but I can only give you 50 up front. If we get what we came for, you get the other 150 as soon as we're safe. Wired to an account of your choice. If all we manage is getting out alive, you'll still get another 50 for your trouble. He smiled grimly. Call it an incentive to stick it out if things turn ugly. Callie looked each of them in the eye for a few seconds, then nodded. All right, that's fair. Good. Brian said, folding his hands in front of him. One other thing. Since we're actually working this job with you, I want the same protection you extend to your fellow runners. Anyone asks, you don't tell them anything about who hired you or who you worked with. Callie made a sound of disagreement. It's not that easy, Summers. You may be working this op, but that doesn't make you a runner. If you take anything in that vault and the vamps trace it back to me, the only way I'll be able to save my own skin is if I give them the name of my employer. If you want my silence, you've got to give me your word that this is a look-see, operation only. Copy whatever you want, but you don't steal anything tangible and you don't smash anything. Sasha could tell that her cellmates didn't like that any more than she did. Brian's eyes narrowed and Rebecca opened her mouth to protest until Brian put a hand on her arm to stop her. Fiona's expression and posture didn't change, but Sasha saw the flaring of her nostrils and the subtle tightening of the muscles around her eyes. Consensus? Sasha asked telepathically. A no-touch rule is going to seriously cut down on the damage we can do to the vamps, Brian said, sounding irritated. I was hoping to set a few viruses loose in their network, bomb them from the inside. And the whole point of this was that we were supposed to get what's in that box, Rebecca said. Not the whole point. If we can get the data files and find out what was in the box, won't that be good enough to make the elders happy? I'm not sure there's any way to make the elders happy right now, Rebecca said, her thoughts sounding uncharacteristically bitter. Sasha is right, Fiona said. The box was small and light. Logic suggests that it contained a prototype or a demonstration for whatever was described in the files. If we can obtain that information... We can probably consider the box expendable. Her emerald eyes focused on Brian. And there may be wisdom in not escalating the conflict with the Syndicate any more than necessary. Making an example of Viscount would be a public embarrassment to them and would likely invite retaliation. A wave of cold fear ran through the rest of them at that thought. Up until now, the Hive's skirmishes with Malcolm's organization had been small and only minimally disruptive an exchange of petty slights and minor inconveniences. Blowing up Viscount's network could change all that, and the odds were good that the vamps would not be overly discriminating in their retaliation. Damn it, Brian said, but Sasha could tell he agreed with Fiona's assessment of the situation. All right, so we do it her way. Any objections? There were none. 
They pulled their attention out of the link and back to the runner in front of them. It's a deal, Brian said. He extended his palm toward Callie, and she clasped it. Out of curiosity, why are we even trying to do this? You couldn't steal this package when it was out in the open. What makes you think we're going to be able to get it out of one of the most heavily defended vaults in the city? Brian smiled thinly. In my experience, it's when people's secrets are behind locks and alarms that they become the most complacent about looking after them. Besides, this time we'll have luck on our side. I can't believe, with all that preparation, you never told me how to change back. Eva made an exasperated noise on the other end of the phone. It didn't even occur to me. I've been shifting my whole life. Would you expect a bird to be able to tell you how to fly? If I were falling off a cliff, I think I'd ask it to try, Danny said dryly. She picked a pair of pants off of the rack and held it up against her waist with her free hand. She couldn't make any sense of women's clothing sizes, but this one looked close enough to give it a try in the dressing room. Ava sighed. Okay, look, I'm just guessing here, but I think it has to do with desire. Danny draped the pair of pants over her arm and picked up another in a slightly different size. How do you mean? Well, Evan and I tend to trade off when there's something that one of us really wants to do, or something that one of us really wants the other one to deal with. If I think I want Evan to take over and he doesn't, I can usually look back at the situation later and realize that subconsciously I did want to be the one in charge. All right, but you're talking about two different personalities. There's just me. Wrong. There's Daniel and Danny. The trouble is that Danny hasn't had a lot of time to be herself, and you still share so many of your thoughts and feelings with your alter ego that you can't tell where you stop and he begins. All of your differences are subconscious, which makes it harder to separate them. Danny frowned, then adjusted the phone against her ear as she moved toward the racks of shirts and blouses. Assuming you're right, why wouldn't I have been able to change back this morning after I ran into Kevin? I was so embarrassed I just wanted to disappear. On the surface level, sure. But you also fancied him, didn't you? Danny blushed at the memory of it. Um, yeah. She admitted. There you have it, then. Danny stuck around because she was hoping to get lucky. What? Well, isn't it obvious? A sexy bit of man flesh walking around with no top on, and the androgyne libido being what it is. That's crazy! Kevin's gay, for God's sakes. If I were thinking like that, I'd have a better chance if I switched back to Daniel. There you go again, thinking that this is all about thinking. Danny, think about it. Daniel doesn't fancy men, but Danny obviously does. If Danny registers an attraction to a man, she's going to stick around and explore it, because Daniel hasn't the tools to process those feelings. It doesn't matter if you know he's gay. He's still a man, and his pheromones are still going to flip Danny's switches. It's all biochemistry, darling. Don't lecture me about biochemistry. I make a living off of it. Obviously not in the field of sexual dynamics. Danny sighed. So you're saying that I'm not going to change back into a man unless I really, really want to, deep down inside? Well, you needn't sound so cheeky about it. Sorry. The idea of wishing makes it so is something I usually associate with children's stories and dangerously powerful magic. Ava chuckled. <laughs> the curse is dangerously powerful magic, Danny. Dark wizard, visions of conquest, empowered by the dark gods. Is any of this ringing a bell? Now who's the cheeky one? 
Whatever Ava might have said, it was interrupted by a beep from Danny's mobile phone. She checked the display and saw that she had another call coming in. She saw the name attached to the phone number and her stomach fluttered. Hang on, Ava. Jared's on the other line. She pushed the button to flip the calls without waiting to hear Ava's response. Hello? Hello. Is this Danny? His tone was cheerful, relaxed, and polite. Hey, Jared. Danny said. She smiled broadly as she spoke. She'd heard somewhere that people could tell when you were smiling, even on the phone, and she hoped that it would be enough to hide her nervousness. I wanted to say thanks for pulling me out of my shell last night. It was a lot of fun talking and dancing with you. You're welcome. I had a great time, too. She thought back to their time together on the dance floor, blushing at the memory. She'd used all the tricks Ava had taught her about how to move as a woman, and Jared had bought into it completely. She had let him lead her on the dance floor, but she had never stopped being in control of the situation or the level of intimacy between them. She hadn't allowed it to degenerate into the sort of desperate snog-fest that she'd had with Ava earlier in the evening, but she hadn't been afraid to show off a little sensuality either. Jared, for his part, had been gentle and courteous, letting her set the tone. Even the hug that they had shared before parting ways had been completely her idea, though he had been more than willing to hold her against his body one more time. Great. Listen, I was wondering if you might be available for dinner tonight. I'd love to get a chance to sit down with you and just talk some more. Hopefully someplace that isn't quite so loud. That might be a good idea, yes. Danny said, chuckling. I don't have any plans for tonight, so yeah, it's a date. Fantastic. Jared said. Danny realized that they were right. You could hear a smile through a telephone. Shall I pick you up at, say, six o'clock? Done and done. I'll send you the address as soon as we're off the line. See you tonight. Until then, Jared said and rang off. Danny switched back to the other line. Back. And? And we've got a date. He's picking me up at six. Boy moves fast, Ava said, amused. Nice to see some decisiveness from the male half of the species. Will you need help getting ready, darling? Danny looked down at the clothes on her arm. I think I'll be all right this time. I'm picking up some clothes to round out my wardrobe. Men's jeans do not fit right on this body. Believe me, I know the feeling. Call me if you need any emergency advice, won't you? Danny smiled. Count on it. Ava rang off, and Danny pocketed the phone and turned her attention back to shopping. She had only a few hours before her first real date with a man. And for some reason, she felt very strongly that she wanted to look her best for him. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast, right after these messages. The third annual Parsec Awards are a celebration of excellence in speculative fiction podcasting. Nominations are open through June 15th. Please visit www.parsecawards.com to find out how to nominate your favorite speculative fiction podcasts. That's www.parsecawards.com. The President of the United States is dead. He was murdered in the morning sunlight by a four-year-old boy. So began J.C. Hutchins' Seventh Son Podiobook Trilogy, the most popular podcast novel series in history. Last December, the trilogy concluded. The heroes were triumphant, or so we think. But now, it's time to go back 
and reveal moments in the Seventh Son story that were merely hinted at in the original trilogy. Welcome to Seventh Son Obsidian. J.C. Hutchins has opened up his Seventh Son universe and invited the seven biggest names in podcast fiction to chronicle a nationwide blackout that rocked America during the Seventh Son trilogy. Seventh Son Obsidian features short stories from these award-winning and nominated authors. Michael A. Stackpole, Scott Sigler, T. Morris, Murr Lafferty, Matt Wallace, Mark Yoshimoto Nemkov, and Christiana Ellis. And even more tales from these trailblazing podcast entertainers. Evo Terra, Dan Class, Wichita Rutherford, George Prob, TD0013, Soccer Girl, and the cast of The Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd. Obsidian also features dozens of audio and video recordings, stories of the blackout as told by its victims, created by Seventh Sun fans across the globe. On May 31st, the lights go out. America becomes a police state. Because when the power fails, chaos reigns. Subscribe now to Seventh Sun Obsidian or catch up with the original Seventh Sun Trilogy experience at jchutchins.net. Hi, this is Danny Cutler, host of the Truth Seekers podcast, which you can find at www.truthseekerscast.com. And I also am Sasha in Making the Cut. And you are listening to the Metamore City podcast. And we're back. I want to give a big thank you to my voice actors in this episode. I started working on it last Friday, which is later than I like to run on these things. And I discovered to my horror that the audio files for four of my actors all had problems that made them unusable. I was afraid that I'd never be able to get everything straightened out in time, but my loyal cast members came through, and they got me everything that I needed over the course of the weekend. I'm just amazed at the commitment and dedication from my team on this project, and I am so grateful to all of them for helping to make this show the best that it can be. Thank you guys, you rock. Now then, I got all my announcements out of the way at the beginning of the show, so let's get to some feedback. Hey Chris, it's Nobelis. I just listened to the last episode, last, uh, last line of Chapter 9 of Making the Cut, and you had me laughing out loud. Great line, I love it. The whole episode was wonderful, but you really got me with that last line. Bye. Hey, thanks Nobelis. Yeah, I don't normally consider myself a humorous writer, but every once in a while the muse gives me a really good line that I can't wait to use. I'm glad you liked it. Hey Chris, this is Frank Shears of Texas. I uh, just want to say I finished chapter 7. I'm enjoying the series. Uh, personally, I think I enjoyed the short stories more than the novel so far. Uh, looking really, was really hoping to see more characters out of the Welcome to the City story. But that said, out of making the cut, the, your characterization is great. That's the only thing that's driving me to keep watching this or listening to this I should say I don't know what it is I don't like size 
whether it's, it's probably just because I'm, I'm used to them from Babylon 5, where they're always, the Psycor is always villainous, and that's tend to be how I see all the characters here. They're all either villains or sheep. And so as a whole, I don't like them, but the story is compelling enough that I can't stop listening. So I guess that's a sign that it's a real good show. Uh, and I look forward to seeing more in the universe. Thanks for calling in, Frank. I'm glad that I've been able to keep you coming back to the story, even though you were predisposed to dislike it. For what it's worth, I too am a big fan of Babylon 5, but I always saw the size as being some of the most morally complex characters on the show. Lita, Talia, Ironheart, Byron, even Bester all had at least some honorable qualities, but all of them also had a darker side to their nature. I love stories that live in that ambiguous place in between the heroes and the monsters, and I hope that I'm doing a good job of showing both the positive and the negative aspects of the Psy Collective. Hopefully, as the story goes on, you'll see some of those people you think of as villains displaying at least some redeeming qualities, and I believe that you'll find that the sheep have more courage than you think. This next message is a long one, so I am going to break it up into pieces to answer it. Hi, my name is Scott Pike from Salem, Oregon. I just finished listening to the latest episode of the podcast, and I want to say you've got one of the best storytelling out there. I have a few questions, though. What exactly is a theriomorph? Is it some kind of werewolf or something? Hi, Scott. Theriomorphs are people who are affected by one of the three variants of the Curse of Metamorph, specifically the one that turns people into animals. The dark wizard, Nasaj, intended to use that spell to turn Metamor's defenders into mindless beasts, but they managed to partially counter it. Theriomorphs spend most of their time in a hybrid form between human and animal, but they can shift into a full-morph animal form at will, and they can even take human form for short periods of time if they're willing to pay it back with an equal amount of time in animal form. Theriomorphs are not werewolves, though. They don't have the strength and ferocity of a true lycanthrope, and their shapeshifting isn't tied to the moon. Theriomorphs are the second most common version of the curse after the androgynes. They make up about 18% of Metamorph's population, which is spread out over a whole bunch of different animal species. And what's with the, uh, the psychics all thinking of everyone who's not a psychic as a mundane? I mean, they hold mundanes in the breath of the normal human as a succubus, a vampire, or whatever. I mean, that doesn't seem to make sense since mundanes would be people without any magic. You're right. Normally, a mundi does just mean a plain vanilla human. In the Psy Collective, though, the word is used to refer to any mortal who isn't a Psy. That's because the Spookies see themselves as being an evolutionary step above all other mortals, not just the ones who don't have any special abilities. Even Psy's don't refer to vampires and Daedra as mundis, though. They're not mundane, they're monsters, at least from a Spookies point of view. And... Are the psychics also a product of the curse, or are they something different? Because I thought all the uh, different supernatural beings who didn't come from someplace else outside the world were products of the magical curse. Nope. The curse of Metamor comes in three flavors. The Theriomorphs, whom I just described earlier, the Androgynes, like Evan and Ava, and the pedomorphs, who spend most of their time stuck in the body of a child, between 5 and 14 years of age, 
We haven't seen any pedomorphs yet because they're very rare. They're the one version of the curse that doesn't have any real redeeming qualities, so unless you've got a heroic ancestor whom you're really serious about honoring, or you lost your protection amulet and you got cursed at random, you're probably not going to take that version. Size are a natural progression in human evolution. Nobody knows exactly why they exist, but it has been shown that exposure to life-aspected mana fields can cause people to spontaneously develop psychic powers. So it's possible that the rise in the Psi population is because of the rise in ambient mana levels over the last thousand years. The first vampires were created by Lilith, the dark nature goddess who embodied the principles of competition and predation. She created the vampire to be her ultimate perfect predator on the human population. Lilith was killed after the gods fell to Earth, but her power was inherited by a mortal priestess named Talia. All of the world's vampires can trace their bloodlines back to either Lilith or Talia, who they refer to as the Vampire Queens. None of them have anything to do with the curse, though. And uh, what's the backstory behind the curse, anyway? I've only heard the podcast, and it hasn't really explained a lot about where the curse came from. I mean, if it's the source of all the magic, does that mean outside its range there is no magic, or that things are created with it don't work? Well, hopefully the last two chapters have given you a few more hints about the story behind the curse. As Ava said, the curse was developed by the wizard Nasaj with the assistance of the Dark Gods. Nasaj wanted to conquer the kingdom of Metamor, which was the gateway to the lands further south. But time and again, the mages of Metamor Keep had stopped his spells from harming the castle or its inhabitants. Nasaj turned to transmutation magic to slip past those wards, but the Keep's defenders figured out what was happening and raised a counterspell just in time to partially counteract it. The curse spread out and covered the valley, fueled by the magical nexus that sat under the Keep. And from that point on, anyone who lingered too long in cursed territory would be affected by one of the three versions of the curse. After the fall of the gods, Majestrix Kaya managed to gain a little more control over the curse, which allowed the people affected by it to return to their normal bodies for up to 12 hours at a time. The Metamorians also managed to design a suppression amulet, which would hold off the curse's effects for as long as the charm was active, which allowed people to live in cursed territory without changing. That was the breakthrough that let the rest of the world stop seeing Metamor as a land of freaks and monsters, which eventually allowed it to become the world power that it is today. Those are just a few of the questions I had about the Metamor situation. Keep writing, it's a great story. Bye-bye. Thanks for the great question, Scott. I hope that I was able to explain everything in a way that made sense and give you a better picture of the world of Metamor. If the rest of you have any questions that you would like me to answer, you can send them in to feedback at metamorcity.com. You can also call the voicemail line at 206-350-7333, or you can post your question to me on the Ask the Author thread at the discussion forums over at thecursed.org. And that is all the time we have for today, folks. Those of you coming to Balticon, I'll see you this Friday. Everyone else, I'll talk to you in two weeks. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project 
located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.